You are on Max's Island, a podcast by Meet Max Power. On Max's Island podcast, you'll hear the lived experiences of people who choose to live life a little differently. It might be a story of when they took time out and dared to do something crazy. Perhaps they made a decision to leave it all behind and follow their dreams. Or maybe they just stopped listening to what other people thought and did what was right for them. This experience becomes a story that is part of them and one that you need to hear. So, now that you're on Max's Island, listen to the wisdom in these stories and you too will be inspired to do what you have always wanted to do. On Max's Island today, I'm joined by James Hoare. James, welcome to the island. Thank you very much, Tony. James, all our guests on Max's Island have the opportunity to tell a story about the time in their life where they maybe did something for themselves or maybe they just left the world behind and chose to follow a dream or something happened in their life that changed everything and perhaps created a new destination for them to, to aim at. Have you got that time in your life where one of those things may have happened to you? I have, Tony. I have had the unusual situation of being temporarily blind for two months. In 2017, I was, I was blind and unable to walk after an incident at work. Obviously, you can see now, so that was a temporary scenario. Are you able to tell us how it happened and then how you got your sight back? Yeah, so I was assaulted at work as a support worker on June 3rd, 2015 and April 20th, 2016. And, well, from uh, April 20th, 2016 until January 27th, 2017, I slowly lost my eyesight and my balance and everything became very, how would I put it? Well, very, it just, it just got a lot worse, but I did not realize how bad I was getting because it was slow progress. And I didn't realize what was happening. Had you been ill before? Had you had some underlying conditions that the assault may have uh, impacted on? Yes, yes. I have a condition called hydrocephalus, which is, a, a, which is excessive fluid on the brain. It is a condition that I was born with, and I had four brain surgeries before the age of 11, but I lived for 20 years without any problems at all. Like I climbed two of the world's tallest mountains. I ran a marathon, sorry, 
half marathon and uh, went to university. I took part in the Rottnest Swim here in Perth and I lived an absolutely full life. But then the assaults happened and I started going downhill. But I did not think that the headaches that I was getting were to do with the hydrocephalus. It was only when I lost my eyesight completely that I even uh, I started to think, oh, um, I guess I might be in a bit of trouble here. And what were the medical people saying? Were they trying to link the two scenarios together, your, your illness as well as the assault and all the trauma from the assault, or were they able to do that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the doctors, the surgeons. My my dad is a, a veterinary surgeon who knows a lot about uh, human medical science as well. So he was able to help because of his knowledge of my background. They all came together and they established what had happened with my help. I gave them the timeline and they said, yes, this is definitely to do with this. This would not have happened without <laughs> this. You would, not, you would not have gone blind without being punched in the head. And so, well, they, they worked out everything. And the conclusion that they came to was that I needed another shunt in my brain a drainage shunt for the fluid for the excess fluid over my skull and if i did not have that then i would well i would die hydrocephalus is a fatal condition it is dealt with through surgery because medication will only help you so far there are numerous procedures, but having a shunt, a drainage shunt put into your brain is the most effective for giving up the person a long lifespan. Every other procedure will only extend their life a few years. So the procedure is dangerous. They, they always tell you, do you want to go through with this procedure? because there is always a one in three risk that you will have a stroke, a seizure, an aneurysm, a bleed, a heart attack, or you could just die on the table because your brain doesn't like you being, it doesn't like being poked around in. So they say you can either have medication which will prolong your life for a couple of years, but you will be high in the sky on medication and then you die or you have the one in three chance of death with the surgery, but you could live a full life, a full, a full life being the oldest person with hydrocephalus was Teresa Alvina Shan. And she lived to 76. So, yeah, that's a full life, but I plan on going beyond that. James, you were obviously being told this when you were blind. 
So you were in a pretty stressful environment and the medicos are giving you this prognosis and, and this percentage of success and potential risk that likely to occur. And I've been around the, the people who are blind, vision impaired, and certainly those that have suddenly gone blind, the trauma of that is quite significant because of the, the, the total change in perspective and the total change in their life and their inability to be able to see. So you would have been in that highly traumatised situation and being told this. How did you feel at that point? Did that give you some hope that you could get your sight back and you were just prepared to take any risk? Or was it the this scenario of going, it's just all too much? Very good question. I was scared out of my out of my bones, out of my skin, out of <laughs> out of everything. I'm not afraid to admit that I went into a room by myself and I just cried trying to work out what I should do. But that was three minutes of crying, came back and just said, let's go for it. Because two years of being drugged up to high heaven and low hell is not a life. I want to have a full life. So I just said, let's go for the surgery. How long did it take before the surgery happened? So therefore, how long were you blind? From January 27th, 2017 to March 23rd, 2017, so just under two months, uh, was the period that I was blind for and unable to walk. And post-surgery, was this incredible elation when you came to and you are able to see? And were you able to see immediately? Brilliant question. Uh, yes. <laughs> best day of my life, hands down, best day of my life. I was in a, a medically induced coma for, I think, about uh, 12 hours. Yeah, not, not very long, but eventually, yeah, I woke up and I saw my parents sitting at the end of my bed and my vision was complete. There was no blurriness. There was nothing wrong with it. And that was the best day of my life to date. Absolutely the best day of my life. That is incredible. It's incredible that you, as I said, got so much clarity immediately. Mm. So obviously there, there's this great sense of relief. Just the vision, being able to see, you would have immediately thought, well, Everything was successful, the operation went well, and I'm going to make a full recovery. Is that what happened? And once you got over the effects of the surgery, how did that change your life and, and what impact did it have on your on your life going forward? My period of the period of time when I was unable to see and unable to walk, it made <laughs> two months of just laying in your bed, not being able to do anything. You've got a lot of time to reflect. And coupling that with getting my eyesight back and over the recovery period, I just felt I want to do something. I want to give back. I, I mean, I've always been someone who loved to help people. I've built houses in Cambodia. Uh, for people who didn't have houses. I've done the world's greatest shave seven times. But 
I really felt that I wanted to do something. And so I thought up ways that I could give back, that I could help people. So now I've started speaking at schools. Well, I talk to young adults. I talk to 15, 16-year-olds about dealing with their problems, going through tough times in their life, and everything that that encompasses. So I, I want to give back to the world. I want to help other people to go through their shitty times because I learned a lot from mine and I think I can help other people to come to realizations that they may not get to by themselves. I mean, sometimes you just need someone to point things out they're not they're not mind-blowing points the what I say to the kids but they they can help them to deal with all sorts of problems that they're going through in life and uh yeah that's that's what I want to do that's what I've got out of my really difficult time was the want to give back the want to help others that's a really charitable and positive approach to life what sort of reaction do you get from these young people are they overawed are they do that are they matter of fact how how do you get what sort of reactions do you do get from them well it's not just my uh, brain injury that i talk about it's uh, all sorts of things i i saved a guy's life uh, saved a guy's life on a bus one time I climb, I talk about my mountain climbing and my goals there. And so I get a few looks of shock and awe, but I get, I get laughter because I, I talk about some of the things that I've been through are ridiculous. And I try and look at them in a funny way because sometimes you have to laugh to, well, you have to laugh to stop yourself crying. I always try and laugh. That's another thing that I've got out of the last few years is trying to see the positive in every situation. James, you just mentioned mountaineering. You've just gone through an incredibly traumatic event. You've come out of the other side. You've got this positive attitude. You've got this want to help others and educate others, especially young people, to understand tough times in their life and the ability to recover and, and you know, that post-traumatic growth. But climbing mountains, that's a big stretch. How did you get, how did you get that as, as one of your activities or goals post-surgery? My uncle, an amazing individual, absolutely incredible man, he went to base camp on Everest and he was a just, he, he did the Ironman competitions, the new Korean Ironman series all over the world. He was a larger than life individual, but at the same time, he was very modest and very down to earth. He was Superman. He was the, Superman in my eyes as a child growing up. And I wanted to be like him. And when he climbed to base camp on Everest, well, 
I'm just going to say this, Tony. My family is slightly competitive. I'm <laughs> very competitive. I wanted to go above base camp on Everest. And I came to this conclusion after climbing Mount Kosciuszko just for the hell of it. I wanted to climb the tallest mountain in Australia just to say I did. But once I reached the top, I started getting this very competitive feeling and like not just with my uncle Peter, but with myself. I always want to be better than the person I was yesterday. I always, it's, it, it's not about being better than other people for me. It's being better than the person that I was. So after I climbed a Mount Kosciuszko in New South Wales, I thought, what can I do next? And so I found out that Kilimanjaro is about 500 meters taller than base camp on Everest. So, yeah, I thought I'm going to do that. And so I went and did it. And then, then I found out about the fact that no one with hydrocephalus had ever climbed the seven summits. No one with hydrocephalus had ever climbed Everest to the summit. So I set myself goals. And that's when I started looking up uh, world records. And that's when I found out oh, all these silly world records. Okay, they're not silly. Silly of me to say that. But I found out all these world records that I can break in my lifetime, just by doing the things that I love to do. The first climb of Kosciuszko, was that before your accident or after your accident? No, no, Kosciuszko and Kilimanjaro were well before I was assaulted. Kosciuszko was 11, 2011, and Kilimanjaro was 2013. So you did have some experience in that area. So that makes sort of sense that your, your goal setting post-surgery evolved around some of this competitiveness around climbing. Tell me about the Seven Summit. For, for, for listeners on Max's Island, some of them may not know what the, the Seven Summits are and what's the significance of them. So the Seven Summits, Tony, are the tallest mountain on every continent. On the continent of Australia, you've got Mount Kosciuszko. Like the larger continent of Australasia, that's including the islands around Australia, it's the Cartens Pyramid in New Guinea. So there are kind of eight seven summits, if you can <laughs> say that. Yes, yeah, so the tallest mountain on Australian on the Australian mainland is Mount Kosciuszko at 2,228 metres. Then you've got Mount Kilimanjaro in Africa, which is 5,895. Then you've got Aconcagua, which is the tallest mountain in South America. And then you have, in Asia, it's obviously Everest. In North America, it's Mount Denali. And in uh, Europe, it's Mount Elborus. And in Antarctica, it's Mount Vinderson. And I plan on climbing every one. They all pose different challenges. And I have 
chosen to do the easiest going up to the hardest. And that was why I went recently to Switzerland to do a mountaineering school in Leysin. Couple of questions. First one is so of the seven or slash eight, how many have you completed so far? And do you have a timeline on completing what's left? I did Mount Kosciuszko in 2011, Mount Kilimanjaro in 13, and I was training for Aconcagua. Aconcagua is the tallest mountain outside the Himalayas. And it is also the tallest mountain in the world that you can walk straight up. You don't actually need that much mountaineering experience. You just need high altitude experience. I was training for Aconcagua and then I got punched in the head. And that kind of slowed everything down. I went and uh, I went on my trip. Uh, last month and I climbed because I went on a bit of a family holiday as well I also went to Scotland and climbed Ben Nevis with my sister and then we went to Switzerland as a pair and I did a mountaineering course and learned all these new skills which will help me in the future and I want to go on a mountaineering school in New to New Zealand and maybe uh, the Blue Mountains here in Australia as well. Did you find in this recent mountaineering course that it was a big jump for you in terms of skills, risk, all of those things? Some of the skills I learned were quite simple because it was a beginner's mountaineering course, but the risk level, I mean, I, uh, I had one oh crap moment here. I slipped while climbing the, the side of the glacier, a glacier being a mountain that is covered in a thick layer of ice. So you've got an iceberg, which is a solid block of ice. You have a mountain which has snow at the top or maybe doesn't have snow at the top. And then you have a glacier, which is a mountain that is covered in a thick layer of ice and snow. And I was climbing the side of a very steep glacier and my crampons, that is the spiky shoes that you wear attached to your boots. The crampons did not dig into the side enough, into the ice enough. And they came out of the ice and I slid down the mountain towards a ravine, a hole in the ice and snow. And I had one of those moments where I just thought, oh, goody. Um, <laughs> yes. Okay. But I was trying to ram my ice axe behind me into the snow, into the ice, and try to drive it as hard as I could into the ice so that I would slow down. And thankfully, I stopped about five meters from the edge. So that was good. And what did the instructors think of that? Uh, the very next day, we learned the basic techniques of how to stop in that exact event. If you lose your footing and you're sliding down, 
yes, we learned exactly what you're meant to do. And I won't say that was because of what happened to me, but well, no, it was because of what happened to me. Let's not kid around. <laughs> so what is the, the, the next mountain that you're going to climb? And how, how many years do you think it will take to do all, all five that are left or six that are left? Yes. Uh, so the next mountain of the seven or of the seven summits is Aconcagua, the tallest mountain outside of the Himalayas, the tallest that you can walk straight up. It's just short of 7,000 metres above sea level. And I am so looking forward to it. In order to do all of them, that takes time, money and fitness. And I'd like to say 20 years. That would put me at 59 years old. Uh, So, yeah, I'd like to think 20 years, but... It all depends on whether my fitness holds up and whether I have enough money. (laughs) So any sponsors out there, anyone who wants to sponsor me. (laughs) Listeners to Max's Island and those of the listeners who perhaps listened to the previous episode of this featuring Claire Allen and Claire being a CEO talked about five-year plans for a CEO and careers and planning. So uh, this is quite interesting that you're actually talking a 20-year plan. And I think that probably suggests the enormity of the task. But at the same time, it is refreshing for you, I'm sure, to be able to give yourself that time, but it allows you to be a little bit more measured and planned in your approach, which is probably a good thing when you're talking about dangerous situations. So it gives you the opportunity to continue to improve your skills, continue to improve your fitness and be prepared for, for anything that it throws at you. Absolutely. Yes, I mean, I do have a five-year plan that includes climbing uh, a concagua. It includes doing a couple of skill, uh, a, couple of, a couple more mountaineering schools around the world. Yes, I think I would do in the next two years, one school, whether it be in New South Wales or in uh, New Zealand. And then hopefully I'll climb Aconcagua in within the next three years. So there's my three-year plan in terms of that. But on the one-year anniversary of my most recent brain surgery, June 21st, I was climbing a glacier in Switzerland. I was at the summit of a glacier, or almost at the summit of a glacier in Switzerland. So going from having a brain bleed drained, where they took out about 300 mils of blood, to uh, and also making my shunt in my brain program- programmable by a remote control, going from that to being on the mountain, being on a glacier, I think that was pretty, it was a huge step for me. It it was just monumental considering what I was doing a year after my previous surgery in 17. James, as we conclude our chat today, you have reflected a couple of times on records, on goals of what you want to achieve. 
But tell me about these records that you have in your mind that are part of this process of climbing these seven summits and what are they? The records are once I climb a concagua, I will have climbed the highest of anyone with hydrocephalus. So that will be one world record. That's the first one I'm looking to set. Then once I complete the seven summits, no one with hydrocephalus has climbed the seven summits. So I will be the first person and the fastest person. I don't know whether that's two records in one, but anyway. And then the last one I hope I will get to and I expect to get to, but it won't happen for decades. The oldest person with hydrocephalus was Teresa Alvina Shan, and she died at the age of 76. So if I live to 77 and my plans, I'm a cricketer, so bear with me a second. I have never made a century. I've never made a century with that. So I plan on making one in life, whether it's in age or with the bat, we shall see. But I I plan on making it to 100. <laughs> what a goal. What a name. James, thank you for joining us on the island. Your story of resilience from illness, from trauma is quite incredible. But the most fascinating thing for me is the focus you have so high. Now, maybe that's a bit of a metaphor um, around the summit, but you you do have a uh, have a gaze that I'm sure is is looking upwards and onwards that is something that I, I know that you you mentioned that you talk to young people about and it is a great approach to life. It's fantastic that you've been able to share it with us on Max's Island. And just before we go, during your journey, there must have been people in your life that have made a difference and have really helped. Um, perhaps you can just finish with acknowledging those if there are people that um, have been part of your life and, and those that you think will be able to help you into the future to achieve your seven summits. Thank you, Tony. Yeah, I there are so many people who have been so helpful to me. I mean, i just like to say a huge, huge thank you to everyone who's helped me medically-wise and who's still helping me. Everyone at Sir Charles Gardner Hospital here in Perth. That's where I've had my brain surgeries, all three of them. So yeah, everyone at Sir Charles Gardner. And I would like to thank my friends, Trey Lowry, Tracy Lowry, Rob Hatton, Sarah Habblethwaite, Rosalie Small. They've all been there for me and and so many others, but they these guys have been there for me so much and i really appreciate it but also my indoor cricket teams uh the super troopers and the uh and the snakes my teammates as well as my teammates at uh the cardinia lakes cricket club my outdoor team they have all been so helpful to me and lastly but not absolutely not least the most, I just want to say um, a massive, massive thanks to my family, my mum and dad. They took care of me when I was blind and unable to walk. 
and they they cared for me for two months doing everything for me and i would not be here if it weren't for them yeah i mean all my family my sisters included my brothers-in-law but my parents they had to put up with me uh, for two months and yeah i i could not i cannot thank them enough i just want to say my friend sarah she was good enough to help me like she contacted me from over east in melbourne and she was going through her own traumatic experience she was recovering from her own major surgeries and her own accident she's working with people with disabilities now herself and she's i just want to mention very quickly her uh, her training company for people with disabilities and for people who are sick called Excelsior Training. And everyone in Melbourne, look it up. She's a great person and she will train you and she will help you because she is doing so much good work. James, we uh, enjoy a good plug on Max's Island and really happy to support anybody who's working in the disability space. Many of the listeners on Max's Island would have experienced guests who have either worked in disability or worked for people who are disadvantaged and uh, we're more than um, happy to 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 plug somebody who is doing good things for good people james i know that we will re-engage in the future and you'll be an ongoing guest on max's island because this journey is going to take lots of twists and turns and it'll be continuing for many many years and um, so we hope to have you back soon when you've achieved perhaps the next summit and you can tell the listeners on Max's Island how it went and some of the things that you face. So thanks for sharing your story with us and we'll see you soon. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Tony. We spoke on the bus on the way home from work. He was lost in the details of life. Each day was a blur, all work and all play and how how it had turned out this way He told me his plan A short-term escape Five weeks on the Bibbulmin track Go it alone No one to blame If he finished Or fell by the way No one's an island But sometimes it's good to pretend
His sense was engaged, his mind was as clear as the sky. Completely alone, no emails or phone, and 